Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and now podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. Tonight, today, we have two guests. First, Dr. George Delgado. He's uh, previously heard on Dr. Doctor on episode number 23. That episode was a second chance at choice about reversing the abortion pill. He's a board-certified family physician and also in hospice and palliative care medicine. He's president of the Steno Institute that focuses on morally sound clinical research, and he's the medical director of the Culture of Life Family Services that's located in both San Diego and Escondido, California. We have with him his friend, Bill Goyette. Bill is pretty much a rocket scientist. He has over 35 years experience in the aerospace industry as an electrical engineer, an engineering physicist, and a systems engineer. He has a dozen U.S. patents. He's managed a department of over 100 radio frequency engineers. And for the past 10 years, he's led a variety of product development efforts from small research and development activities to large programs. And he works with George Delgado at the Culture of Life Family Services as the chairman of the board. George, Bill, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Yeah, thank you, Doctor. It's uh, great to be here. So, uh, Bill, you know, you sound uh, something like me. You've probably been sheltered in with less work to do than normal. So during those several weeks, you, with many Americans, have seen the news each day, try to understand the future of this pandemic better. When are the numbers going to come down? When can we stop sheltering in place? And in reviewing some of the same information available to all Americans, something led you to try to build a better predictive mousetrap. What was it that led you to do this? Well, that's right. So I was looking at the data that was being presented by, you know, the, uh, the reporting that was coming out of Europe um, by the various health organizations and the models that uh, were pretty loose and a wide variety of uh, outcomes were being predicted. And in general, the media was presenting a picture with a very sharp exponential rise in uh, infections and deaths. And um, I thought about it and I thought, you know, there's probably a, 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 a better way to attack the problem using some tools that we have available to us in uh, the physics community. So I started a couple of weeks ago putting together what I would, what I call a Monte Carlo simulation that bounds uh, a problem with a bunch of probability distributions and uses so, random number generators. Okay. So Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo brings to mind for most people gambling. So what, what is a Monte Carlo simulation? Where else might most listeners have heard of this? Well, a Monte Carlo simulation can be, is used sometimes in uh, predictive economics. It's used for financial planning. Um, when they preview the Super Bowl, they'll run essentially a Monte Carlo simulation on a game outcome. So you'll hear like, we played the game 400 times and 60% of the time, the New England Patriots won. Basically, they're running a Monte Carlo simulation to predict the outcome. And every time they play the game, they use different random number seeds. So it varies, but it kind of mimics real life. Okay. Before we go deeper to the Monte Carlo simulation, 
and Dr. Doctor, we've been interviewing some public health experts, and they, a couple of weeks ago, recommended to me a website, uh, covid19.healthdata.org, under the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And they both told me, yeah, they're, they're doing this really well. It makes sense. They're really open about their data. But yet, when I, I looked at it even a week ago, they predicted the peak of resource use, that is ICU beds, ventilators, to be like April 18th or 19th. Today, we're taping this on Good Friday, April 10th. Now they're predicting tomorrow, Holy Saturday will be the peak. Why was this model so far off? Well, as far as we can tell, the uh, IMHE is essentially a curve fit to data trends. And as I understand it, early on, they were using uh, data from Wuhan. And recently, they've adapted their data sets to um, trends in Europe, uh, primarily Italy and Spain. And those, those curves that are being traced in terms of you know, the rise of the death rate in the fall and, and their utilize, utilization of resources show a more compressed uh, timeline. And so they've adjusted their, their models to match that data and that's kind of pulled in the, uh, the peak utilization and also the peak death rate to an earlier date. Because I remember that as of a week or two ago, they were predicting on that website, you know, a minimum of 100,000 deaths and a max of, I don't know, a quarter million or so. Now they're saying maybe 60,000 deaths, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's lower than that. And, and so I think I can relate to you because intuitively the predictions didn't fit what I saw in curves in other countries. How about you, George? What was your um, impression of the data that you were seeing come in as far as the predictions went? Well, I have very much the same feeling. You know, when I, obviously, when I saw the first data coming in from China, I was very, very concerned. And then seeing what was happening in Italy and to a somewhat similar extent in Spain, I also became very concerned. What happened here, though, was that, uh, and I think the, the people at the IMHE model, they did the best they could with the tools they had, but their tools really were inadequate. And so they start off with the Chinese data. And of course, we now know that the Chinese were not transparent. And so we really ca cannot trust anything that's coming out of China at this point. And then what happened in Italy is they reacted much too late and they let the pandemic get out of hand. Well, here in the United States, of course, we had a much different tact. We had some advanced forewarning and we took very, very effective mitigation steps. So that really, really did squish the curve, no doubt about it. But the, so in other words, we really can't use either China or a comparison or Italy as a comparison to us because we're very different circumstances or data. You can use a comparison, but it's a very, they're very imperfect comparisons. And if you rely solely on their data to match the curves at IMHE, then we're going to have faulty predictions, which is what we've had. And that's why a dynamic model like the Monte Carlo model is going to be it can be so effective and much, much more predictive. So when we say curve matching, that would be assuming our curve is going to be the same shape with the same slopes. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. They take, they take the, our current data, and you can see as our curves become more real, they adjust their model. So they're doing a combination of taking what they've you know, seen in Europe, applying it to our recent data, and then as, as as we actually move up the curve with real data, their probability variation, you know, the, the error upper limits and lower limits collapse, right? Into yes. a more certain outcome. 
Yes. So when you say a dynamic model, how does a dynamic model differ from a curve fit model? Well, the dynamic model basically that is set up in the Monte Carlo simulation uh, allows uh, for a number of inputs that are framing um, either uh, outcomes due to infections, outcomes due to hospitalization. For example, you know, if we find that we have effective therapies to save people who are in critical care and we go from a certain death rate to something that's half of that, we can very easily adjust those parameters in the model and the predictive outcome will track with it. So uh, we can take excellent. data, yeah, we can take existing data sets for all the risk factors, for the number of people that are asymptomatic, uh, for the death outcomes or the fatality as a function of age or other conditions, and we can adjust uh, the model dynamically as that data comes in. All right, so. And that's pretty Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Um, and this looks like the opposite of, you know, the phrase we might have heard, "geigo," garbage in, garbage out, because a model is only as good as the data you put into it. It sounds like you have considered a number of different inputs. That's even, correct. Even so, maybe more than the IHME has. Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I can't comment particularly on what's going on inside of, you know, what, what they're sure. studying internally and looking at. Um, in the model that I built, I, I put a number of inputs to capture demographics, you know, age of populations, um, health behavior, uh, relative health status, uh, you know, things like pre-existing conditions. So every person that's in the simulation gets weighted with a, a certain set of characteristics that are representative of the general population that you're trying to model. And as you learn more about it, you know, you can adjust those input parameters as necessary. Um, and you'll be able to use this in the like, future too. Once we come up with a vaccine, other treatments, you can keep doing this for months now, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, the, the way the model is set up is it can pick up um, an infection dynamically at any point in time. You can adjust for things like weather conditions. If we find that, you know, the summer is causing the transmission rate of the virus to drop, or we find that it's causing the effectiveness of the virus to tail off. It's not as lethal. Um, we can adjust for that. We can adjust for changes in behavior. So if people are less mobile or have less contacts per day as a result of social distancing or whatever, we can very easily put that into the model and adjust it. And the model will tell you, and the more data you get to you know, frame the model, the more accurate it becomes. So it becomes a very excellent tool to use for policy management and so that we can, you know, get back to work, but also have a, an effective way to gauge and, and measure how and, we're doing. And from emails with you, it sounds like no one else has used this very robust method uh, in epidemiology. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not aware of it. It, it. Generally, in my, you know, observations and studying and reading papers, which I've immersed myself in over the past <laughs> couple of weeks, learn a lot more about it. In general, it seems like there's a combination of closed form models and ways to describe, you know, the epidemiology, the, the spread of the virus using parameters that you input to those models that are, you know, derivative of prior epidemics or pandemics. So I think what and, listeners really want to know is how do your predictions first differ 
from uh, IEHME and other uh, models, curve fit models. And then what do they predict for the next weeks and months? So first of all, how have, have you performed better over the last couple of weeks than the other curve fit models out there? Yeah, well, it, it, it was about a week and a half ago when I was able to first put down what I would consider a reasonable first cut uh, prediction. And I, I did socialize that with George and uh, some other folks. And um, last week I sent out, you know, kind of an update to that. Um, but generally my predictions that I started on was, uh, you know, modeling New York City because mm -hmm. that was where everything was heating up. Yes. And uh, when I did the first cut through the model, kind of the, the, the numbers that I was seeing was numbers in the, in the range of 700 deaths per day at the peak. And, and I said, that's pretty interesting because it's, you know, and I was matching the, the rising edge of the curve because that's kind mm -hmm. of the one calibration point that, you know, is hard data, right? Yes. So, so based on, you know, just based on demographics and mobility, and I also kind of calibrated against Italy and Spain, and uh, it was tracking what they were doing very closely. Also applied it to Wuhan, just as a population, and, you know, got a, a fatality rate that was significantly higher than reported, but we, we don't really oh, know what happened, interesting. happened in that area. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been very close. I you know I've done some refinements, but basically we're we're pretty much tracking, you know, dead on. And I have a model for San Diego. That's, yeah, that's New York yesterday was seven ninety nine deaths, and for today the data is almost complete for the day. They're at seven seventy seven. Yeah, so I think I think everybody's kind of acknowledging that they're plateauing out. Yes. And of course, the IMHE model is converging on that number because as they get real data, they kind of neck their prediction down, right? So everything right now to me says that for almost a week now, we've been onto that flat top part of the curve where we've been talking about wanting to flatten the, the curve. It looks like we're there. Would you agree? I would agree. You too, George? Absolutely. Yes, we're seeing that with the hard data. So uh, tell us, so since you looked at New York City, and, and this just reminds me, when, when I interviewed two days ago, um, Dr. Mark Strand, an epidemiologist, a PhD, he said, you know, if you stay away from the, the news cycles, you can see that we've actually done a pretty good job in the United States, because like China and Italy, we have confined the majority of our cases, at that point, he said 53%, to the New York City metro area with New Jersey and some of Pennsylvania. Uh, so let's look at this peak area. Now, I've got the, the curves printed out for me, what's predicted through the end of August. Can you tell our listeners what this is predicting and what it means? Well, what, what we would predict in the model is a little, di little bit different than the IMHE model. And mm -hmm. so far as the IMHE model is, they're telling you it's a short-term model. It's really modeling a single up and down cycle of a curve. And implicit in their model is that the infection rate, which has been greatly reduced because of, you know, the measures that we've taken, yes. stays, you know, buried, right? But in practical terms, you know, we know that we, there, there's, a, there's a middle ground that says, hey, we can start loosening up and, and, and get back to normal. There, there is going to be a residual low-level death rate, you know, not dissimilar to normal flu. Correct. That, that is likely to continue that's not reflected in the IMHE model. But if, if we 
allow people to go back to normal and maintain, and I think of it this way, if people in their minds say, hey, I'm going to contact a quarter of the people I would normally contact in a day, right? We're reducing mm -hmm. infectious contacts. I think we're there. And that's not a hard thing to wrap your mind around. People actually are pretty panicked at this point. So they're, yes. they're kind of instinctively doing the things that, that would get you there without really much effort at all, right? Yes. So I, th so I, I see that as, as pretty much a low level. If you look at South Korea, their data, you know, yes. they had an initial hump. Yes. They got hit pretty early. And now they have kind of a low level of, you know, continuing deaths on a very, you know, it's a straight line curve, but it's a very low level and, the, you know, and it's way, way lower than their peak. And Bill, we should probably point out that getting to zero deaths is not reasonable, nor is it possible. I think since everybody's focused on COVID right now, we think that's what should occur, but we don't do any risk mitigation for that with auto accidents, with, with climbing ladders, with, with anything else in life. So having that low background should be considered almost yeah, a normal that, part yeah, of I life. I would say that's an in incompatible view with the, the human experience. I mean, the function, every day we deal with an acceptable level of risk, right? And normal, and, and, and a healthy person balances those risks. And, and I think we're at a point right now where the, the risk of COVID in people's minds psychologically is being amplified to a, an extreme, right? Meanwhile, all the normal risks that we deal with that result in death, if you look at the a pie chart, you know, with the different things you can die of. If we reduce COVID down to a small sliver of all the things that people die from, yes. I think we've balanced it, you know, with the general, you know, um, you know, demand and, of and society. For one of the numbers I want to point out from the graph you sent me of your New York uh, model is that on Easter Sunday, it looks like the risk of getting a COVID infection in New York City is about three in a thousand or one-tenth of what it was four weeks before. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I mean, so generally, so that metric is an interesting metric that, that kind of jumped out at me when I was thinking about it. I said, okay, we've done a heck of a job across the country, you know, locking down. We've driven the infection rate way down, and you, you, you're going to see that because, you know, instead of, you know, things, things are bowing over, which is, you know, given – the timeline of when we lock down, you would expect, okay, people stop contacting each other. The uh, the infection rate drops significantly. You get a bow wave of, of hospitalizations and deaths from infections that occurred prior to lockdown, right? Yes. And as as the number of infected, you know, people uh, drops because a lot of those people that were infected before have recovered. Yes. Right. The proportion of infected people to healthy people actually drops significantly. So if you weigh that as a risk of getting infection right now, the risk is way less than it was back when the, the, the virus was active and people were spreading it around and not paying attention. So Correct. but we're acting we're acting like the risk is 10 times worse when in reality it's it really 10 is. times less. Now, you mentioned so to me in an email that you discovered something fascinating when you did a curve for Nebraska. What did you discover with that simulation? Well, you know, yeah, with, the, with Nebraska. So, I, you know, I've got some friends of mine that are, that are doctors <laughs> in Nebraska. And, and I took a look at Nebraska because I was, you know, they asked me to take a look at, at the situation there. So Nebraska, um, you know, is one of those 
those, you know, middle of the country and, and their infection, you know, they had their first death on uh, March 31st. And, uh, you know, active infection probably really wasn't a thing there until uh, near and about the time that the country was getting concerned and we were starting to lock down. So, you know, Nebraska never really, you know, was in a position where the, the virus and the infection rate had peaked. So they essentially kind of went into a modest amount of, and they didn't lock down, stay at home, but, you know, that people are doing the social distancing and stuff there. And in that situation, the virus, you know, uh, infection rate has never even had an opportunity to peak. And essentially, if people continue what they're doing now, they don't have a stay-at-home order. But if they kind of practice, you know, good uh, social distancing, wash your hands, and do that sort of thing, I think they're they're in good shape. You know, it's just a it's a, then, it's probably a good extreme example of the opposite of what. New and York then is you modeled another metro area, the one where you and George live in San Diego. What did that demonstrate to you? Well, San Diego is a little different insofar as I think we we did have evidence, you know, because we had deaths occurring earlier of an active infection starting, you know, to take off a little bit prior to, uh, you know, the, the the start of the social distancing and the lockdown. But, um, and so our death rate relative to, you know, what you're seeing in Nebraska is higher, but it's nothing like New York. And I think we've got it early enough. In general, I think California, except for maybe a few little hotspots, but in general, California is in the same same position where in early March, we were already starting to, you know, not shake hands and do elbow bumps and people were spending more time washing their hands and being more careful. And then we kind of got even more severe when we, you know, got the stay at home order. But in, in California, it's pretty much been squelched and we're looking at a much lower uh, death rate curve. And the evidence that's playing out is consistent with that. And, uh, Yep, as of today, again, your death rate in California is 15 per million versus 400 per million in New Jersey. You guys have actually done a tremendously good job. Yeah, and it really was. Uh, yeah. we, we've done a great job, but it's also the timing of it. The mitigation went into effect much earlier than compared to the East Coast. So oh. that was really California's advantage. The timing is that because of Washington State on the West right. Coast? Well, yeah, I think, I think that scared uh, the West Coast. And I think, and I went, you know, there's, people are saying, hey, what happened in New York, they've kind of done, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the gene, whatever, the fingerprinting of the virus and say oh, yes. this, this was Genomic a strain type. that came, mm -hmm. that came from Europe in mid-February. And that, so I went back to my model and I said, okay, well, I want to just put one or two people in. And I ended up having to put four because it's just hard to kickstart, you know, a pandemic with just one person, right? But I put four people in and it turned out that it was mid-February and it grows into, you know, the size and the timing of what we see now. So basically what happened in New York was the the, the spread of that virus was pretty much full, full speed ahead by, you know, the first week in, in March. And by the time they were locking down, it had already peaked and they were kind of chopping off the backside of it, right? Ah, uh, got um, it. The other Excellent. thing to keep in mind, Tom, is that we, perspective is very important here. So look, you know, San Diego, we, we talked about 70, uh, excuse me, 40 deaths so far 
approximately in a county of 3.3 million people. Wow. And you look nationwide at the influenza death rate just from this season, and the estimates are anywhere from 40 to 57,000 and still counting. So that kind of puts it in perspective. No death is welcome, of course, and, and we want to be cavalier with individual deaths. But when you're looking at public health and numbers, you do have to take that into account and put it in perspective. Nobody's running around crazy scared about the flu because it's something they know. But when it's right. something that's unknown and brand new, people do tend to get more concerned and often panic. But people probably should be more concerned about the flu because of the number of people who do die of it. Yes. Uh, and maybe this Absolutely. will wake some people up. Okay. A, a, a concept that might be difficult, but I think it will bear some fruit if we can get through it. By bringing in you, and we also had on this tremendous economist, Tim Reichert, who brought up these, these approaches to things we'd not thought of. So the reproductive number, the reproductive number, which we shorthand call r not, is how many new infections are likely to be caused by each person who's already infected. And so Tim Reichert said that not only does a reproductive number vary from person to person with the infection, because there are a small percentage of people who are super spreaders. I mean, you can think about that. There was the choir at the church in Washington. There was the Biogen conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where like three-fourths of the choir and half of this conference of 150 people were infected by one person. So we know that each individual who's infected has a different reproductive number. Right. But Tim Reichert suggests that different activities have different reproductive numbers. Some are more dangerous than others, like running well, I mean, on a- Like singing, because when you're singing, you're breathing harder, you're aerosolizing. So that's Correct. an example. Correct. So the question is, he says that the government has been looking at shutting down things based on essential versus non-essential, within reality, we should be determining what we're doing based on whether it's a high or low reproductive number uh, activity. What do you think about that, Bill? And then George? Well, yeah, I, well, I would, I would 100% you know, agree with that. I mean, I think uh, if you're just looking at it from a scientific perspective and you're looking at causal things that, you know, they're responsible for the spread, you know, we know that, you know, when we abstract it out in general, you know, contact by infected people to healthy people is something we would like to minimize. But if certain types of people have particular activities or behaviors that would make them more likely to infect a whole bunch of people, and I'll use an example, and this is you know, something that's changed recently, but I was in the grocery store a few weeks ago and I'm observing people bringing their bags from home, the checker taking those bags, which are, you know, they got stuff in them, growth or whatever, you know, they're, they're not new, handling them, putting groceries in, and then turning to the next people and doing the same thing. With their bare hands. Taking, with their bare hands. And then taking cash and credit cards and, or, or, you know, whatever it is. Actually, maybe the, you're, you're doing the credit card on the machine. But I looked at that and I go, okay, that grocery clerk is literally cross-contaminating yes. every single bag that comes through because we're not using, uh, you know, the plastic bags like we used to or paper bags, new ones. Um, the, the, the negative effect of that policy is you basically turn the grocery grocery clerk into a potential super spreader, right? Typhoid Mary. So that's a behavior you would want to change, and they've actually done that. They said, oh. hey, no more bringing your bags, right? Yes. They've adjusted that policy. So those are the things we should do. We should look at behaviors that are likely to infect people, or if we have the means to determine 
who could infect vulnerable people like screening people working in the old folks homes, you know, just to make sure that, you know, they're healthy because we know they're particularly vulnerable. These are all common sense things we can do, but to just neck it down and say, okay, essential services, non-essential services, not based on any science is not a smart way to do policy. Of course, that if you if you have no time and you say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to shut everything down except for keep the things I need, that's a reactionary policy. But I think we need to move to a data-driven common sense policy because we really need to get the country back to work, right? I mean, the, the, the economic toll is, is going to be disastrous. Oh, yes. There are going to be more uh, health effects on future fatalities because of all the medical care that didn't happen for every other disease that is in COVID. Do you think that's yeah, exactly. true, George? Uh, not only that, but we see today the Surgeon General was talking about the uh, disproportionate number of cases in African-American and Hispanics. And a lot of that has to do with their, uh, in general, poor health status, which can be linked to socioeconomic status, not having good food, not having access to health care, not having access to exercise or exercise advice. Well, what's going to happen if we keep the economy shut down too long? They're the ones who are going to suffer disproportionately, and they're going to then get even greater risk because the health is going to slip even more. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind. Aside from the types of activities, I think we also need to look at the density of people. We really, we're not going to be able to go back to packed concert halls or maybe even packed churches or other events where people are really standing shoulder to shoulder and uh, breathing on each other. I think we're going to have to have some uh, extent of social distancing, even in restaurants where tables are moved apart from each other. Probably at churches, they're going to probably have people sitting in every other pew, things like that. Being careful, uh, just scheduling more services so people have more. And professional sports having maybe arenas where they stagger the seating so that people are not on top of each other making so that lines are spaced out, all of these kinds of things uh, I think we can do and, and take the foot off the pedal and ease back into normal life without having a big rebound effect. So, yeah, yeah and I think, I think for, for... Yeah, when will sorry, we Tom. have life as we used to think of as normal? Can your models help us see, or do we have to go in this step-down approach, uh, you know, a few months at a time? Well, you know, I think the mo so the model itself is is a neutral thing, and it, it has numbers and metrics that you can use to help guide public policy. But to, if if the model says, "Hey, we need a way to reduce our contacts, our infectious contacts," you know, by seventy five percent or fifty percent, whatever the number is, then there's a social policy construct that has to take that and say, "How do we most effectively do that with the minimum impact?" to society, right? And and the more we learn about ways that people can get infected or not infected, what behaviors are, are most likely to cause infections, you focus on those things and let everybody else get back to normal. I think that's that's essentially what the model can do. You can certainly calibrate it. If we get more, you know, uniform testing, we can adjust the infectious rate of the population. At some point you actually reach herd immunity, right? Yes. The model will show you that at some point, uh, the infection, you know, you can drop people in into the model arbitrarily at any time. And you can say, hey, a busload of people are coming in and half of them are sick. What happens? We, we've got 60% of our people have already had it. Is this thing a risk or do we just need to, you know, do some screening but not worry about it too much? You know, I mean, that's, 
that's what the model will tell you. And it's, like I said, it's dynamic and it can be adjusted based on. Who are the people around, who would need to learn more about your model so that we could probably do the greatest good for uh, our country? Who would you like to I think the pub be using it? I think the public policy people, you know, in conjunction with, so I think the, the, the role of the medical community would be to make sure that the data that frames, you know, the, the infectious risk or frames, you know, the outcome tables, if we get new therapies or ultimately a vaccine or whatever, we look to the medical community to define those parameters. But public policy folks need to be able to say, okay, in my demographic, where I'm responsible for setting public policy, those are the people that need to be able to look at a model like this and make smart decisions, right? And right now, you know, people are heavily leaning towards the oppressive. Yes. You know, they're, they're reacting to something that's four weeks old with, you know, it's kind of like, I, I feel it's like one of those things where like you're, you're working uh, on your table saw and you almost cut your finger off and then you stop and then your heart starts beating. It's like, okay, well, you're just reacting to that experience. That's what's happening now. It's part of human nature. It's how we get conditioned. But right now we're literally reacting to a risk that's passed as far as its significance. And we need to start leaning forward and doing common sense things to get back to normal. So one thing that Tim Reichert, the economist pointed out is that the equilibrium point for policymakers deciding to shut down activities is always to do what you said, shut it down as much as possible. How do we, how do we wake them up to realize that that might not be the best thing because of all the other negative things that'll happen because of shutting down activity. And this could be. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's already, it's already clear. There's a number of, you know, people that are in really dire straits who have lost their businesses or their jobs. There's landlords being affected because half the people can't pay their rent and, and pretty soon. And we've already, you know, borrowed against, you know, ourselves to, to temporarily kind of buy some time, but it's not sustainable. Right. Um, right. I think I think the president and most people have kind of figured that out. I mean, there's definitely a sense of urgency in trying to figure out how do we move forward. I think there's a commission now that the president started that's a separate commission to look at, you know, the recovery plan separate from the health management, you know, commission that's excellent already been in place. George, what do you say to that? I think that's right. You know, I think it's treating a pandemic is in many ways like treating a patient. If you have a patient who has hypertension, you're going to use a drug early on. The blood pressure goes up, you add a second drug. The course of treatment is dynamic and you have to respond to it. Or if you're treating a patient, let's say you have sepsis in the ICU, you're going to be very aggressive using antibiotics, maybe steroids, maybe uh, diff different type of new modalities. As the patient improves, you take the patient off the ventilator, you move the patient out to the ward and finally the patient goes home. Same thing with this pandemic. We can't use the same treatment that got us this success because now it's a different patient. The pandemic is different. So it doesn't make sense to continue to use the sledgehammer when now we have to use the scalpel and be much more discriminating with our treatment and not be so severe with our treatment. So George, I assume you believe uh, this model, you believe the risk is lower than it was a month ago. How has that changed, if at all, how you bring patients into your practice for in-person care? Well, in the last week or so, I've been much more readily asking them to come in for in-office visits. We have been doing telehealth, but uh, now loosening the reins and, and the coming week we'll be doing that more. 
I'm glad to hear that. Uh, that's what we're finding here too. And I find that those who know the least about the numbers, the curves, about medicine are the ones most likely to say you're crazy. Uh, but I think the risk really is lower and that we're doing everything we can to mitigate that risk. I love hearing a voice of common sense like yours, George. <laughs> Bill, if there is only one thing that you want listeners to remember from this interview, what would that be? I'm sorry, I missed Bill, if there is only one thing that you want listeners to remember from this interview, what would it be? Well, I, I, I think people in general um, need to understand that the, the peak deaths that we're seeing now are the last of a series of chain of events. So people were infected four weeks ago, say, uh, maybe five, hard to tell exactly. Then we saw hospitalization and people getting critical care hospitalization and that demand and that's already peaked and now we're going through the peak deaths. So it definitely means that we're on the backside and that the policy of locking down actually was very effective across the country. New York is the worst case. The rest of the country actually has it, I think, well in control with a few hotspots in Louisiana, Detroit, a couple other urban areas, you know, they have uh, kind of a subset of the New York metro area, which includes New Jersey, right? New Jersey's numbers are largely driven by the same thing as New York. Yes. Um, and that there is a path forward. I mean, I, like I said, uh, if you look at the curve of risk, it, as the risk is coming down, the deaths are peaking up at the same time. And by the end of April, you know, that risk is, is way, way less than it was six weeks ago when people weren't even paying attention. They were cracking jokes about the coronavirus, and right? Because it was something over there, but right. that's when we were at the greatest risk. So if we gradually let up a little bit, like you gave as an example, if we contact one fourth of the normal people outside our homes that we normally would each day, that that would be a reasonable level to go to at this point or soon. If you were a yeah, policymaker, <laughs> yeah, if I was, and I think it's a very easy thing that you know people I think are already conditioned now to wash their hands, not touch their face, they're you know. If they want to go to the gas pump and use a glove or, you know, a towel, you know, just little things like that, you know, kind of the what about Bob things, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, th those things are um, all things that kind of add up to reducing that contact, you know, shaking hands, you know, common in an office or whatever, you, you know, that all that stuff, you put that aside. I just think those things in and of themselves in encouraging sick people, anybody with any symptoms at all, stay home, employers, encourage your employees to not come in. If people are, can continue working at home, maybe go in the office once or twice a week, that's a very easy thing to do. Uh, and then protect those who are, who are vulnerable, like in the old folks' homes or whatever. And I, I, think, I think that's a very easy policy to enact that would get most businesses back online. And as George Bill. said, you know, some of these, Go ahead. Yes, sir. Yeah, as George says, you know, we might have some, when we have mass events, uh, there might be some spacing requirements. You know, I would look to local communities, you know, ch churches or whatever, if they're going to, uh, they need to start leaning forward and proposing reasonable things to allow, you know, the churches to reopen. It might involve offering more masses or services and having them be less, you know, uh, more sparse so people can spread out a little bit. 
But I think it's time as a society we lean forward and figure out how to, how to get back to normal. Bill, is there any place where you have posted online what your predictive curves are for different areas? Because I'm sure that listeners would love to see some of the things your model is predicting. Well, cur- currently, George and I are, are, are working on, um, you know, finishing up the documentation. And I think um, we haven't posted them publicly yet. Right. We're kind of running through some some peer review. And uh, oh, good. And I, but I think but I think that one of the probably I would say that uh, the most effective peer review. And if you want to think of it that way, is the fact that the data, the real data is is tracking uh, to the model. Which, yes. Um, well, the test of any so profit it, is how accurate his predictions are. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think our plan is to you know make the the, the model and its engine widely available as a tool. Uh, there has to be some cleanup, you know, for that to be a, a widely used tool. Um, you know, I we're looking for uh, you know perhaps a university collaborator to help us, uh, you know, get that kind of published and out there and readily accessible. Um, right now, you know, I started applying things that I've done many times in my career to this problem a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's turned out to be a very effective, uh, tool, but it definitely needs a little bit of work to, to make it. it widely accessible to the general population. George, what final comments would you like to make to listeners? I'd like to reassure listeners that we've done a great job with our mitigation strategies. So this is not as bad as we thought it would be. So thanks be to God for that. And number two, uh, it is time now to change the treatment because the patient is better. So we have to adjust our treatment to the pandemic patient. And that means uh, making some common sense decisions and getting ourselves closer to to what normal life was uh, was for us before. And Bill, what final comments do you have? Yeah, I, I, I feel that, you know, we've turned the corner and, you know, certainly there's still going to be a bow wave of, of deaths over the next few weeks that, you know, is very tragic and, you know, for those people involved. But I think we're in a position right now where we can get back to normal literally as soon as people have the stomach for it. So I feel like New York's going through a very tough time right now. They probably psychologically in, you know, in early May is probably when they would be psychologically ready. Uh, But I think we could actually start right now letting our foot off the gas across the country with some sane policies. And and I can tell you that from, you know, just showing my daughter's a nurse and she's going to be starting a new job in a couple of weeks and she was very concerned and I showed her these curves and say, look, the risk now is way less than it was four weeks ago. And by the time you start your job, it's going to be even less. You know, that made her feel a lot, a lot better because when you look at what you see on the news, it's like curves going up, tests are going up, deaths are going up, and nobody can see the end game. Right. And that's only a partial view. Well, Bill and George, thanks for being guests today on Dr. Doctor. I want to thank also our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. I ask you to please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Phonography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.